My conversation today is with Mickey Williams. Mickey is a CSP certified speaking professional, a member of the prestigious CPAE Speaker Hall of Fame and a TEDx speaker. As a global celebrity speaker and transformational storyteller, she was chosen as one of the best speakers in the country by Meetings and Convention Magazine, along with Tony Robbins, Bill Gates, Lou Holtz, and Jay Leto. Mickey is an award-winning Vistage speaker, the world's leading executive organization, and a master chair of two of their peer advisory boards in Chicago. Based in Naples, Florida, if that's not enough, this busy entrepreneur runs speaker schools, the Mickey Mouth Club, Keynote Camp, Outrageous Orators, and is an in-demand speech coach. She has spoken in every U.S. state, every Canadian province, and every continent, except Antarctica, where she can't wear her stilettos. Mickey, thank you so much for joining me. I am super excited for our conversation. Yes, me too, Christina. It's been a long time coming. We've tried to do this so many times. Yeah, yeah. And I remember it was about a year and a half ago, I think, when we had our first Zoom call, just kind of introduction, and you were leading me through, what am I supposed to do with my life? And I was 21 at the time. This was just about a year ago. And that conversation was very helpful. And you said a lot of things that really stood out to me of things that I needed to realize, especially when you're coming out of college, trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. So I'm really excited to just kind of hear more about your story and then also kind of diving deeper into some of the things that you taught me during that conversation as well. I remember I was thinking about this earlier. I said something very stupid during our conversation. Do you do you recall what it was? There's no such thing as something stupid. Okay. Well, I what I said when we were on the call, because again, we were talking about what I wanted to do and well, the opportunities and et cetera. And I said something along the lines of, I just feel like I missed my opportunity. I feel like it was too late. Like, I feel like it's too late for me to do this. And you looked at me and you were like, Christina, if I was in the same room as you right now, I would get up and smack you across the face <laughs> for how silly what you just said was. Silly, but not stupid, Christina. And that was my New York coming out. And that's a, a, a love phrase. <laughs> yeah, but I, I definitely needed to hear hear that because I was like, it sounds so silly. And I was trying to think about why I felt that way. And I think being my age, you know, getting to the ripe old age of 22, I, I think we see people, you know, we see professional athletes and actresses and, you know, these people doing really awesome things. And sometimes I, I think I look to those people, not that that's because that's what I want to do, but just seeing people do the things that they really love. And I felt this weird dichotomy that I should have everything figured out, that I should have already done something, but then also feeling like, well, I am too young. I'm, you know, having those excuses. And I think that's what it, what it really is rooted in. But I think the more I hear the stories of people and, and the more I realize that as much as I try to make up this timeline of, of how things should happen, it's just not how life works. So I think it's really powerful to hear stories like yours and just realize, you know, everybody has a different timeline. And it helped with that kind of pressure and, and weird thought that I felt like I was it was too late. So I would love if you could take me back to when you were even my age, like what was going through your head when you were 22? And then also, could you just share the story from from then on to what led you to where you're at now? I will and can do that, Christina, but I have to go back before I do that, because what you just said reminded me of two, uh, one a one-liner and another one a joke, which I hope I recall. One is that when we make plans, God laughs. And the second one 
that relates to how you said uh, you're too old, or you've missed the opportunity, everything. And I don't know where it came from, but I imagine someone saying to his mother, you know, I want to be a lawyer, but it's going to take six years and I'll be 46 when that happens. And the mother said, and what will you be in six years if you don't go to be a lawyer? Yeah, I'll still be 46. <laughs> so it certainly puts in perspective when people say that. Yeah, I'm happy to share my story. Uh, it uh, started out as a very simple one. I was raised by a single mom. My dad left when I was four. I had no brothers and sisters, and I had a wonderful life from growing up in New York City with a very devoted mom who exposed me to absolutely everything. But I do remember growing up that I looked forward to the day where I'd have my own family, and uh, that was really my biggest goal. And I went away to college, still with that goal in mind. And back in the 60s, when I went to college, most women went to college to find that husband. Uh, and so I was probably no different. That's not why I went, but you certainly hope that'll happen. And sure enough, it did. I went to Ithaca College and I met a, a young man from Cornell University. And I was from New York City and he was from a tiny little village in Pennsylvania. But we fell in love and we got married and we had all those wonderful plans to um, move and build our first house and have a, a family of Four kids, as, as I say in my one-woman show, three guys for the backfield and one girl to, to be my dancer, which I was at some point in my life. And going back to go, when we make plans, God laughs. Uh, I had uh, We had already given birth to our son, Jason. He was two years of age, and I was pregnant with my second child uh, when, sadly, I lost the baby. And the month after, his father died unexpectedly from a heart attack. And as they say, things happen in threes. And then the third month, my husband Gabe was killed in a car accident. He was 29 years old. So I found myself at 29 being a widow with a two-year-old child, no job, uh, very little life insurance. And uh, it's kind of a, what you call a defining moment in your life. And I remember years and years later saying to someone, well, you know, I had no choice. That's, that's why I started all these businesses. And the person said to me, oh, you absolutely did have a choice. You could have gone on welfare. You could have had a lifelong pity party. You actually did make a choice. And I think my choice was looking at my son and realizing that was my responsibility. And so I had to make money. I really, again, was left with very little. And so I called on my natural skills. I, was, I had been a professional dancer. So I started taking uh, teaching dance lessons with my little boom box. You're too young to even know what a boom box is, Christina. What are these portable little <laughs> recorders? Something you put on your shoulder, yeah? Yeah, that was it. Only I didn't wear mine on my shoulder. That was a different genre. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I started teaching dance at the, you know, the local church in a little Y, and I got grew my following there. And then I was really a good cook, and someone said, why don't you start a catering business? And I said, well, I don't know anything about business. And the next thing you know, I was catering parties as well. And I started this uh, dance studio that grew and grew till I had a very famous clientele, some of which I'm sure you would know, uh, Joanne Woodward, Paul Newman's wife, or maybe not. Uh, they weren't around when you were young. Um, you know, uh, Martha Stewart was my dance student. Uh, Martha and I actually started our catering business together in 1978. Wait, like the Martha Stewart? Yes, the Martha Stewart, yeah. I didn't even need the. I didn't even use any descriptive words. <laughs> I didn't even. Know that. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the dance studio got national acclaim. The catering business was called the Happy Cooker, which was a funny name, and it was a a, a, a caricature of me dancing and holding a frying pan because those were my two careers. 
And somewhere along the way, because this isn't a five-day podcast, somewhere along the way, I realized I was a good entrepreneur. And I had grown this dance business to one of the most successful in the nation. I was in the money column of USA Today. I was getting all this notoriety. Widow juggles four careers. Uh, you know, so I this was the 60s. Women were hardly even working. And from that period, I kept building and selling businesses. I, I'm not going to, I mean, they're all on my webpage to take you through all of them. I think there's seven or nine or I lost count. <laughs> and then. Uh, 1987, I sold the last business I had, which was a health club. And uh, that's when I, it was the first time in my life I didn't know what I was going to do next. I always knew from the business I was in, I'd have one foot there and one foot in my new business. I just knew what was next. And this was the first time I didn't. It was a very interesting year. So I took some time off. I'd made money on the sale. And sadly, I then became the victim of a Ponzi scheme. And I was embezzled out of all my life savings at age 50. So I was literally starting all over again. So I had to make money and I put my ego aside and I sold chocolates for a company called Arnie K. I worked as a part-time marketing director for a sports club called Sportsplex. I just had to support Jason and me. So that's what I did. And again, I, I started thinking about what's next and I couldn't think of it. So one day... I sat down and I said, if I don't know what I want to do, what are the objectives that I want this career to fulfill for me? So I was going to back into it, which turned out to be the most fortuitous thing I've ever done. It's the simplest thing. And yet I wind up sharing with all my coaching clients. I sat down and I came up with four objectives. My first one was travel. I'd never really traveled. I'd always had a family or a facility that I was tied to. So I wanted to see the world. My second objective, and I don't know, people see me or hear me, I love glamour. I come out of a a glamorous industry of dance. You know, I never met a sequin I didn't like. I just love glamour. So it had to be glamorous. Then the third one, it had to be people-oriented because I am a people person and I love people. And the fourth one was a little interesting. I said, no glass ceiling. And again, I don't know if you know that term. It came about during my era of women hitting this invisible glass ceiling and couldn't go any further, make any more money, anything. So I wanted it to have no glass ceiling in terms of my talent or my effort. So then I started to dabble and I looked at my list. I divided the paper in half and the left side were my talents, hobbies, interests, etc. And the right side were these four objectives. Well, on that left side was just an eclectic mix of dance and catering and fitness and all these things. And I tried to find a match between the two. I didn't initially, so I put it down, and a couple months later, I picked it up, and I got my proverbial aha. I've been in entertainment. I've been in health. I should open a spa, a destination spa, because the first ones that opened in California, and I was on the East Coast, and I thought, I'll open one on the East Coast. What don't I know about opening a spa? I don't know the first thing about running a hotel. So I go back to college to get my master's in hospitality industry, And they give me half my master's for life experience. I ran a catering business. I ran a health club, et cetera. So now I have that and I I don't want to wait because I'm, you know, midlife. The old expression, put the ladder and climb it and realize it's against the wrong house. So I decided to go out and try what I was majoring in. So I went down to a Hyatt and I got myself hired as a PR person just to put myself in the hotel industry to see what it was like. And I really liked it. But this time in my life, I didn't want to compromise those four objectives. 
It had travel. It had people. It had glamour. It just didn't have the financial opportunity because it's, you know, go from the back of the house, the front of the house, and up the corporate ladder. So I said, no. Well, the other expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I knew I was close. So I said, I networked in the hospitality industry. What else do you people do besides, you know, travel and all the, well, we work with meeting planners. What's a meeting planner? These are people who get wined and dined by hotels because they want you to pick their hotel to bring their convention to. Oh, that sounds great. Well, I often knew and I learned early that when you want to learn about an industry, you go to the trade association of that industry. So I look it up and there's two. There's one called MPI. At the time, it was Meeting Planners International. I think it's Meeting Professional International now. And the other one was the American Society of Association Executives. So I fly to Washington, D.C. I get certified in Convention of Meeting Management. Puff, I'm a meeting planner. Now I go out and start planning meetings, and very quickly I realize it's a behind-the-scenes job. Christina, you don't know me real well, but I would not describe me as a behind-the-scenes person. So once again, I thought I was close. There was a game that I used to play as a little girl, warm, 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 hot, hot, hot. You're getting closer to finding what the, the prize is. And again, I started networking with meeting planners. What else do you do besides plan meetings? Well, we hire speakers. Well, what's a speaker? You know, people who speak at conventions. Oh, I said, well, I always do that. You know, when I was in fitness, I spoke at a fitness convention. When I was in, in dance, I, no, no, thou, that's an industry speaker. I said, well, what does that mean? Well, as an industry speaker, you didn't get paid, did you? I said, people get paid to give speeches? Oh, yes. Those are professional speakers. And off I went. Looked up and found the National Speakers Association, went to my first meeting and never looked back and just retired from my 36-year career as a professional speaker, having reached every goal that I ever set, from being in the Hall of Fame to doing the TED Talk to speaking at the White House twice to being the first speaker to tour South Africa after apartheid to speak at President Mandela's home, uh, and I've done it all. So that's the story. I've heard... And I already thought you've done it all. But then I, every time I talk to you, it's like I learn more and, and more about what you do and more about what you've done. And, and how old were you? Going back to the objectives part of that story, when did that start? When did that happen? I was right around 50, late 40s, 50, because that's when I lost all my money again and was starting from scratch. And yes, well, you know, I'm going to be 80 in July 4th. Uh, that I don't, <laughs> I've never hit my, so there you have it. So figure the math out. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's still that, that baffles me. And that's awesome. And congratulations. Yeah. Well, I'm only semi-retired. You know, someone who was running five businesses, I retired from the speaking and the traveling, which was a result of a concussion that I had in January, which is why you and I put this off. And I'm still doing my executive coaching and I'm still running my speaker school and my keynote camp. So you can't really call me retired. So going back to your story a little bit, it sounded like it was it was a lot of action, like this step by this step by this step. Did you ever experience like analysis paralysis? I know you talked about the objectives, but did you ever experience overanalyzing situations? No, I never overanalyzed, but I did experience fear every time I started a new business. Will they come? Will I get a customer? What if they don't? Uh, and it, that hasn't changed. I've been a serial entrepreneur my whole life. And every time I start a new venture, and I start so many of them, I go through 
fear, not analysis. And I think that's something a lot of entrepreneurs would probably admit to. But we push forward anyway, because it's in our blood. It's in our genes to be entrepreneurial. How do you address the fear? I push through it. I just push through it. I experience it. And then for me, what's funny, Christina, is whenever I am afraid of anything, I I wallow in it. I I enjoy it for what it is. I can't say the word enjoy is right. I stay in it. And then I get so angry at it that I go 360 the other way. I do that with everything, little, big, businesses, personal, et cetera. Yeah, I, I experience the fear. I allow myself to do it. And then I attack it. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think it's a lot easier said than done. Oh. Uh, I know when I was talking to you, I feel like I have a balance of sometimes taking action and sometimes, you know, doing the analysis paralysis thing. I remember, again, when I was a senior in college, the same time that I had that conversation with you initially, I felt like I was taking action. But in reality, it was actually just movement and tricking me into thinking I was doing something. Like, I'll give an example. So I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but there were a lot of things that I could see myself doing. I, I made an Excel spreadsheet and put the option of like the, the thing that I wanted to do. And then I also put the estimated difficulty of that option, the time commitment. I don't know. Did I ever tell you about this Excel sheet that I made? <laughs> Again, I mean, I'm a planner, but there's an extent to where it's too much. And I think this is where it got to be too much. And And there were 10 different options where the estimated difficulty, the time commitment of that thing. I think I wrote like the plan developedness level. I don't even know if developedness is a word, but I, I put that down there. And for, for each of those things, and I even did conditional formatting so I could see like what was most green, what was mostly red to try to figure out what I what step I should take. And then on top of that, I didn't even stop there. I, I created separate tabs for each of those different options. And I put like the to-do, the status of those to-dos, the deadline, and the notes, just to try to figure out what I should do next, because I could genuinely see myself going a bunch of different routes. And I don't think it was necessarily a waste of time, because it did definitely bring me joy. And it was fun for me. But it felt like I was taking action, when in reality, to a certain point, like I was just tricking my brain into thinking that I was being productive. So, I mean, it sounds like you didn't have to go through, or you didn't put yourself through the whole planning, you, you made it super simple, made the objectives and kind of just pushed forward. Like that's the formula. Yeah. But now I know why you asked me if I had analysis paralysis, because that's exactly what you had. I mean, you were busy, but you were not productive. And there's a big difference between those two things. But, you know, one of my seminars for the last 30 years has been on personality styles. And you are obviously what's called a C, an analytical. And I am a D, which is a decisive risk taker. And so there you have it. It's not a right or wrong. It's just different personality styles. Sometimes it's affected by our, our environment or it's tempered by the things that happen to us in our lives. I mean, let's face it, that's saying, you know, why not try it? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? I already had the worst thing happen to me. So what have I got to lose? And that's kind of my dialogue. So no, and but I almost everybody I coach is like you, Christina. I have to smack the content out of them. They call me because they got great scores on content, but they can't, don't have them on delivery because they're all in their head when I want them in their heart or in their groin, two different areas. you know. And so uh, my last speaker school, my good friend, Michael Lassa, was a fabulous speaker. He coined that head, heart, groin thing. And I found myself using it in my last speaker school, which was just last weekend, because I have two assistant coaches. And I said to the crowd, and I hadn't planned it, 
I said, you're getting very three different coaching approaches today. Sue is my heart person. She will come at you with love and kindness and warmth and express it so tenderly. You just think you're being wrapped in a wrong hug as she's giving you feedback. Bob is my analytical like you, Christina, and he's going to come right from his head. He's going to give you every detail, every specific about what you did at every single point that you spoke. I come from the groin, which is also known as New York. I'm going to be very direct and tell you, I'm going to just smack that out of you. And I'm just going to call on it right away, whatever I see. So there's an advantage to being or recognizing when you're operating for any of those three places or understanding your personality style and allowing yourself some grace as to why you did what you did. And again, no right or wrong, just different ways to approach things. But kudos to you for recognizing that it was more reactive than proactive and more busyness, uh, which is often avoidance for doing the real thing. Psychologically, people play with that and they think of it and others don't. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's being very vulnerable and candid. Good for yeah. you. Thank you. And I, one thing that you brought up, because I'm I'm familiar with DISC specifically, and there's a lot of different personality assessments. Yes. But what I think is interesting that actually kind of, I kind of just am realizing this now is we know that different environments can make us one way or another, maybe more analytical, less analytical. But specifically with fear, I think that drives my more analytical side of, you know, what do you, what do I really want to do? Whereas if I'm not in a, in a, not a fear state, but in that state, I might be kind of maybe more of an I or an S or a C or depending on what personality assessment that you're looking at. Well, we all as humans, we all have fear. We just approach it different ways. I told you mine is to uh, sit in it, experience it, and then go attack it. Like you're not going to win this one over me, and, you know, but everybody's different. And, uh, what makes the world go round, round, round. Yeah. And you you talked about how that kind of pivotal moment for you is part of the reason why you do deal with fear that way. What was your relationship with fear when you were younger? You know, raised by a single mom who instilled a confidence in me that most people didn't have. I was probably the only teenager who didn't try smoking or anything. She always gave me permission to be me which has always been a good thing because I've always been outside the box in terms of my looks, my style, my, you know, it puts off some people, the glamour part of it. And, you know, they may think how credible is she? Uh, but mom always gave me this confidence, even as a young girl, to be different. And I think being different really allayed any fears that I had at that time. And I was able to, you know, be a nonconformist and still feel like I fit in. I mean, that's really where it comes from. Uh, I, so I don't think of it as fear, but I'm also very good at change, which most people are not. You know, I've, I've moved every quarter of my life. I lived in New York the first quarter, and then I lived in Westport, Connecticut to do the family thing. Then I realized I'm a city chick at heart, and so I moved to downtown Chicago to be a city girl. And who knew at 75 I'd meet the love of my life and get married at 79, which was just a couple of months ago. When God makes plans, you know, <laughs> we laugh. When we make plans, God laughs. So it's, um, yeah, it's just I write it out. But that change, you know, I've always believed change is inevitable and growth is optional. Most people don't deal well with change in my own experience, having coached so many hundreds of people. And again, I had change inflicted upon me. I had no choice uh, except to realize I did have a choice. And now I deal really well with change. And I find that's the challenge for most people. 
is dealing with change or pushing through the fear. So in that regard, I feel very blessed. Definitely. And one of the things that you have a TED Talk on is talking about your experience list. Yeah, you know what's so funny about that, Christina? I'm reading a book now. I love this book. It's called Die With Zero. Oh my goodness, I just bought that book. I haven't read it yet. It's in my car. I love it. But here's what's so funny about it. It's my TED Talk only five years later. Here I am in my TED Talk talking about, about experiences. And that's what this whole book is about, experiences. That's so funny that you bring that up. Yeah. I know, but I love it because it's it's what I've been preaching for longer than anybody. I just didn't write a book about it. I just have the TED Talk. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that. Well, and because some people who might be listening either haven't read the book or watched your TED Talk, could you share more about your experience list and then what yeah. you learned through that? So my experience, his comes from a different place because he's a financial guy and he's talking about having these experiences versus money. He's about make memories, not money. And I came at my experience list through the power of storytelling and what I've experienced and manifested in my own life, which is why it's called Manifest Your Dreams. And I give a perfect example in the presentation of what the difference is between someone who has a bucket list versus an experience list. For me, a bucket list is very negative. Things to do before I die. I don't like that. To me, an experience list is things to experience while being fully alive. Now, a bucket list might say Kentucky Derby, Indy 500, uh, 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 Cannes Film Festival. That's a list. And we know now because of storytelling, and that's one of my major topics, that the brain doesn't hold on to lists, but it holds on to stories. So I made my experience list all mini stories. Instead of just Kentucky Derby, mine said I want to go to the Kentucky Derby, sit in Millionaire's Row while sipping a mint julep and wearing an outrageously large hat. And guess what? My new husband is from Kentucky and it's the first gift he gave me. Tell me I didn't manifest that experience. And he knew that was on your experience list, right? He, he heard my TED Talk, but still. Yeah, well, same thing, the Indy 500. That's a part of a list. I did drive at the Indy 500 because I was telling someone in a speech about my experience list and a gal came up to me and said, I can make your indie dreams come true. And so she did. So I believe the power of story in making an experience list is what helps us manifest. He believes you should make memories because of the financial aspect. Neither one of us wrong, but we came about from two different approaches. I just did it first, but who knew? He's getting the credit and it's a great book. I'm excited. I mean, I'm excited to read it now. And obviously, I've seen your your TED Talk before. What is on your experience list that you still haven't done yet? Waltzing in Vienna, the Cannes Film Festival, and mingling with the stars. I'm giving you the bulleted versions of those. I, I've really done almost everything on my experience list. I have not sat down to keep adding to it because my husband and I are really, we're doing it faster than I can write it down. We really are. We're, we're making up for it. And, and I would have to go back and make a, a retroactive experience list because we're doing things that would be on the list and we're doing them before I even have a chance to put them down. Mm -hmm. Being at the, having dinner on the Eiffel Tower on July 4th is, uh, is a big one with the man I love. I, we've both been to Paris, but never with the people we love. So th there's one right there. Yeah. That's awesome. And I love the connection with, so one thing I do is I make a yearly bucket list now, and I find that's really 
helpful. It, it doesn't address what you're specifically talking about, the reason why you created the experience list, but it, it also creates a sense of urgency to do the things instead of waiting. But I love what you're saying because it's, it's adding the storytelling component to it and creating the experience, not just making it into a list. So I'll definitely have to make sure that I, I do that and maybe make that change. Still have a yearly bucket list to create the urgency. I even say a yearly. I know. I just, it doesn't even, yeah. A yearly experience list. Yeah, there you go. Um, I'll call it that. Yeah. But I love that. We, and storytelling clearly is a big part of who you are. Was that always a big part of who you are? Or when did that become such a big thing for you? I think it always was a big part of who I am. Just like, you know, people ask me when they're at my speaker school or my trainings, did I ever go for training? Did I ever join Toastmasters? I said, no, I never did that. English was my best subject. Language in school, French to English. I was always a wordsmith. My son is too. I mean, every year I would get him the word of a day calendar and he'd learn and he's got a vocabulary that when I talk to my son, I have to have a dictionary right next to me. I was always gifted with the gift of gab and the elocution of words. And I think as I would speak to people, I was always a good storyteller. And then again, being ahead of what happened, uh, storytelling comes to the forefront. Now I'm really fascinated with it. So I delve deeper into it on a scientific level and on, on a professional level. And that seems to be, even with branding, I, I'm a brand in the speaker industry. If you use the word outrageous, everyone will know it's me. And people ask me, ask me how did you brand yourself? I said, I was an accidental brand. Before the term branding came about, I just noticed what everybody said about me. And I exploited it. They'd say, oh, yeah, the speaker with the big hair, the speaker with the, the, the shoe collection, the speaker with the big earrings, et cetera. And I just exploited that. And that's really the early stages of branding. And then, you know, 10 years later, people are doing these huge branding things. So a lot of what I've done in my life, as I reflect back, Christina, I did intuitively because of who I am, not because I'm better or smarter than anyone else. I just did it intuitively. And it's been interesting to see how branding and storytelling and uh, my experience list have all come to fruition along the way after I had been doing them instinctively. I, I love the dichotomy of that. I mean, I was, I unfortunately couldn't attend your speaker school because of the cancellation from COVID and things like that. And you shared some advice with me before, but if you could share one piece of advice, just a general piece of advice or whether you want to make it specific to me when it comes to storytelling, what, what advice would you share? Storytelling or speaking? Well, I'm going to challenge you to go back and listen to this podcast for what I shared with you as an insider tip. Has you gotten better? As your unsolicited speaker coach. <laughs> and when it comes to storytelling, you know, we're all storytellers by birth. We're just not all good storytellers. The challenge, and I use this, I, I coined this phrase, everybody who calls me starts off by saying, you know, I'm a pretty good speaker. And I usually stop them and say, no, you're not. You're a good talker. You can't be a good speaker unless you've learned it. It's a craft. It's a science. It's a skill. That's like saying I'm a, I'm a good tennis player because I can pick up a racket and maybe hit a ball. No, there's skills involved. So I think most people, and that is a real challenge too, because nowadays, I mean, I believe everybody needs to come to my speaker school or do something to that effect because everybody in professional worlds, whether they're doing a podcast or giving a sales presentation or whatever, are just talking because they don't know their story structure, their speech structure, there's voice modulation. There's, well, my school's three days and we just about get through 
my 36-year career, which is all foundational and skills that most people don't know. So to say a tip on storytelling, yeah, it's to learn what a story structure is and how to structure your story so people don't fall asleep in the middle of it. Get rid of the blah, 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 as they call it. Get rid of your ums and your sos that drive people nuts that people don't know that they have. And you could do that by recording yourself and listening. You'll be shocked. Most people are absolutely shocked and disgusted when they hear their ums and sos or inflections or anything else that they don't know that they're doing. Yeah, I know you mentioned that you kind of grew up being a good storyteller. Was there anything that like the biggest thing that you learned for yourself that you had to overcome? Like, did you say a lot of ums? Did you say a lot of sos? No, I never really did. And I can't address that in the context of you asking me, but I will come at it from another standpoint. I've always been an astute observer. And when people say, well, if you didn't go to a speaker school or you didn't go to Toastmasters, you have, I said, I'm an astute observer of humans and speaking. And I would watch the best of the best and the worst of the worst. And I would learn from that. And that's also what I recommend. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, someone like Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama who basically, you know, won elections on the power of their speech and their elocution or Bill Clinton, whatever your political side doesn't matter. We often talk about the, the speaking ability and how it's a leadership quality. And whether you're telling a story to your kid at night or whether you're giving a presentation that determines the success of your business, there are certain nuances that most people need to fine. And if you can't go to a school like mine or hire a coach, then become an astute observer. What do I like about this person when I hear them or when I see them? And then adapt it to yourself. And that's basically how I did. Absolutely. That's a great point. I have another episode where we talk about noticing and how in anything, in any skill, it starts with noticing and being able to observe. So that's, I love that if you can't necessarily go to a speaker school right now, or I mean, you can always work on some of your skills, but starting with observing what's what's working with other people. Let's get rid of the ums and so's. And you do that very simply by recording yourself and listening to it. Mm -hmm. That's the simplest thing you could do. Definitely. So at the end of my episodes, I create a challenge for any of the listeners to do that the guests create. So whether it's something that helps people with storytelling, I mean, I think we kind of just gave some practical advice to just observe. It can be with storytelling. It can be with anything else that you've learned in your life or what we've talked about today that can help them get closer to what we are talking about. Do you have a challenge that you would like to share? I'll give them 30 days to do it, and I call it my pies challenge. It's about risk-taking. I challenge everybody to take four new risks in their life that they've never done before, and they have 30 days to do it, and to tell someone else what they are so they're being held accountable to doing it. PI stands for P, a physical risk. Could be a sport you've never done. Could be learning a new skill on a computer or AI or something that physically challenges you. It could be joining the gym or an exercise class or riding a bike or anything like that. I, I stands for an intellectual risk. Read something you've never read before. Go to a library, go to a museum, do something that stimulates you intellectually again, that you've never done before. E stands for an emotional risk. That is mending a broken relationship, 
saying the hard words like I'm sorry or I love you to somebody that maybe needs to hear it. Maybe it's it's learning to be more on the emotionally vulnerable side yourself. Something that would let you know that it's an emotionally emotional risk for you. Most people are very aware of what that might be. S stands for a spiritual risk. And that goes, again, very different to people. Maybe it's taking a yoga class. Maybe it's just taking a walk in nature every day and, and finding delight in what God has created. And maybe it's uh, reading a book on spirituality. So the pies challenge. There you have it. 30 days. That's a great idea. How, did you come up with that? No, I've done that. I, I created it years ago, and it's in one of my speeches. That's awesome. I didn't come up with that. Yes, I love that. And I love specifically how it touches on different aspects of our life because I think risk-taking can be, I mean, for some people, it might be really easy physically, but not as easy emotionally. And yeah. it's easy to be vulnerable for some other people and then not physically or, or not intellectually. Or that, I, That's a great... That's well, a great I had question. a... It was a postcard that I would give out during my presentation and everybody had to mail it back to me after 30 days with what they had done. And it was really amazing to read these cards. I'd get you know tons of these cards on a regular basis, especially the emotional ones where people would write, "I reconnected with my dad, who I haven't seen or spoken to in ten years." You know, I saw my grandchildren for the first time because I had a falling out with their mother. I mean, really heavy, heavy stuff that was just, uh, yeah, all all of them. They were they were just great. Some were funny, some were poignant, some were like, yeah, just really uniquely different. Yeah. Wow. That's super powerful and super cool that you were able to read those as well. Yeah. So, very, so. thank you so much for sharing the challenge and just for, for sharing your story and, and all the lessons that you have. I'm sure that you mentioned before you alluded to having a five day podcast, which I'm sure we could also do sometime. Um, but again, for the sake of time, thank you so much. And where where can people find you if they want to hear more from you? Well, the best place is my website, mickeywilliams.com. Don't let it scare you. I've already told you I'm flamboyant and outrageous. Uh, and that still has almost everything that I do on it. My speaker schools are done twice a year in April and in October in beautiful Naples, Florida. That's on the website. And my executive speech coaching is also available. And if anybody wants to, they could just contact me and I could put them on my monthly email list. I don't know, uh, Christina, if you get my newsletter. It's called Hair She Is, and uh, it's won awards, and people love it because it's a fun newsletter. It's very colorful. It's a magazine format, so you can either read a recipe or read a storytelling tip or see my shoes of the month or or whatever. There's a lot of different things in it, and if you want to be on it, as soon as you go to my webpage, mickeywilliams.com, which is M-I-K-K-I, Williams, there's a little pop-up to sign up for the newsletter. So it's all there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you for the conversation today. You are welcome, Christina. I'll leave you with my, my mantra. Be outrageous. It's the only place that isn't crowded. <laughs>